The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Thanks so much, worship team, for singing those songs and uh, leading us in worship, though we're all separated by, by space. We thank the Lord that we can be together in this way. I'd like to begin by um, uh, sharing with you this morning, uh, some of you have already heard this news through a, a YouTube uh, e- email that came out this past week that uh, Pastor Kevin Schuler has resigned from his position as the pastor of student ministries here at White Ridge Baptist Church, and, and it's a, a kind of a bittersweet time for us. We're going to f- certainly miss uh, Kevin and Jill and their kids Uh, But uh, we see that God has been shaping them and calling them into a different ministry. And uh, we want you to know that these are, this is a decision that was uh, not made lightly by them. Um, The board and staff have been processing with them for several months, far before COVID-19 has nothing to do with that. And um, we just know that God is calling them into a, a ministry of church planting and um, I won't tell you more about that for now, but you can uh, sure that, be sure that between now and the end of June, Kevin will have an opportunity to tell his own story and, and uh, have us be praying for them. So just remember them in prayer and, uh, and uh, certainly reach out to them if you'd like. They're, they're uh, also in that bittersweet uh, stage of gonna miss us, but at the same time excited about what God has for them. Of course, uh, as we think about today, we're going to be talking about intercessory prayer, and uh, I was on a, a, a Zoom conference call this past week with uh, many of the pastors of the region, North and South Dakota and Manitoba of our denomination, along with the regional pastor, Randy Jaspers, and uh, everybody is in the same boat, of course. We're all figuring out how to do ministry in this season of time and seeking to seize the opportunity to do God's ministry the way God wants us to at this time. So I continue to pray. Actually, I uh, talked to, on that, same, uh, on that same call, there was a pastor from Harvey, North Dakota, and they were telling us about how they're going to do a drive-in church service in their parking lot. So <laughs> there's a lot of people doing a lot of creative things in this uh, season of time. And uh, we're going to be calling us to uh, prayer again. Uh, I was talking in prayer with uh, folks on this past Wednesday through Zoom. We are able to uh, connect in prayer, and uh, Erica Cooper is leading that time. And I appreciated so much the time of prayer we had this past Wednesday. I would invite you to join us. Just contact uh, Erica or phone the church office, and you can be part of that. And as we were praying this past Wednesday, there was a, someone that shared a prayer of somebody that had written, uh, and they got permission to, to share it. I'm going to just lead us in prayer, adapting some of what they prayed uh, for us as we begin the sermon uh, this morning. So if you'll just bow, and let's pray together now. Oh, loving Father, thank you, God, that you are over all, even as we have been led in worship to your throne recognizing, God, that you are over all. And today, as we come to you, along with many, many churches around the globe, we come to you, God, asking that you would show mercy to this earth, that you would prepare us as your people, the followers of Jesus Christ around this globe, 
to be your hands and your feet, to be those who are interceding on behalf of the many that do not pray. God, we pray that in this time, may we who are merely inconvenienced by this pandemic remember those whose very lives are at stake. May we who have experienced very few risks in our lives remember those who are the very most vulnerable on the front lines, our healthcare workers, police officers, prison guards, and various people. We think today of Dave and Rhea Jenkinson's daughter-in-law, Nicole, who is from St. Boniface Hospital. Lord, we pray for her that indeed she would not have the COVID-19 virus that uh, she's been sent home for isolation. Lord, we, we pray for her. May, may we also, who have the luxury to work from home, remember who, those who do not have that luxury. They're forced to make a decision between their own health and the basic necessities. May who, we who have the flexibility to care for our children from our homes remember those who perhaps also don't have options there. May we who have had no problems in our lives remember those who face severe difficulties. Maybe, maybe we who have canceled our trips, may we remember those who have no safe to, place to go. Those of us who are losing the margin of our disposable income because of world markets, maybe we'll remember God more cleanly these days, those who have no margin at all. May we who settle in for a period of self-isolation in our safe homes, Lord, may we remember the homeless, those who have no homes. God, there's so much that we should be reminded of in these days. And we pray that in the face of maybe fear or anxiety that have gripped so many people, may we, O oh Lord, choose to follow your peace, your hope, your love. And during this time when we cannot be physically present with each other, wrapping our arms around each other, let us find ways, O oh God, to be the loving embrace of your presence to our neighbors, our family, our friends, and even people we don't know. Oh God, would you help us to be your church on earth? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are in the book of Genesis in these weeks, and today as we begin, we are studying again the life of Abraham as in recent weeks. Last week, we talked about a very pivotal time in his life when he was going from a spiritual adolescence into a maturity of his faith, found in chapter 17. We talked about a new posture that he had before God. We talked about a new identity from God, a new relationship or covenant with God, and a new obedience to God. Today, as we continue the study of Abraham's life, we get into a very sad portion of God's word when in chapters 18 and 19 we see the judgment on two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, that were, were, were rebellious against God in every way. And we see a sad portion, but we also see that the storyline takes us to see how the mercy of God and the prayers of God's people meet up. And so today we're going to be studying that theme. And um, I would encourage you at home, if you have a Bible, to take and open it up and keep it open because I'm going to be referring to a passage of Scripture in this portion uh, throughout the message. And in chapter 18 of Genesis, we, we see that um, the Lord is visiting 
Abraham and Sarah. And it says in the scriptures that he has three men that show up at his doorstep. And God announces that, um, that he's going he's gonna to have a son from his own flesh with Sarah. And it's an incredible announcement. And as, the, as these messengers of God are leaving, we read in the scripture that, that God shares with Abraham what he's about to do at Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, we know that Abraham's nephew, whose name is Lot, lives in Sodom. And so immediately it grabs the heart of Abraham, just like there are certain things that grab your heart when it's somebody you know. And he begins to intercede for Lot and for Sodom. And so that's where we pick up the scripture in Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 22. It says, so the men turned from there and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and he said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, O God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abram answered and said, Behold, I have taken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, Suppose five of them, 50 righteous, are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and he said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry with me and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there, he answered. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of God to us this morning. There's an author by the name of William Bosch who wrote a book called Storytelling, Imagination, and Faith. In this book, he says this. He says, the sign of a good story is that even when you are done with it, it is not done with you. For me, one of those stories is a 1986 British film called The Mission. It is my favorite movie of all time. I have watched it several times. In fact, this past Friday evening, I watched it again. And uh, it seems like it's not done with me yet for some reason. It took on even greater significance when our family was able to visit Iguazu Falls when we lived in South America and we went and visited one of the Jesuit mission posts. The storyline of the movie Mission is about the experiences of a Jesuit missionary played by Jeremy Irons in 1750 in South America 
Robert De Niro plays the part of a mercenary slave trader named Rodrigo Mendoza, who makes his living kidnapping the Guarani native people, selling them to nearby plantations. His life, his life takes on a radical shift when he is accused and of, of acquitted of actually killing his brother, and he is forced to do penance. And the penance is to take his weaponry in a big bag and drag it all the way up above the falls to where the Guarani native people live and where the Jesuit mission post is. And it's an incredible experience where at the climax of the movie for me is when at the very top of the falls, when he meets up with the Guarani, one of them takes a big long knife and looks like he's ready to, to slit the throat of Mendoza, but instead he cuts, cuts the ropes of his burden, of all the weaponry behind him, and he throws it over into the river below. And, and Mendoza begins to sob, and the, the tribal people think it's so funny, and they begin to laugh, and then he starts laughing, and everybody starts laughing. And all of a sudden, finally delivered from a violent past, forgiven by the people that he once victimized, he begins to live a new life. He spends his life among the Guarani and dies trying to defend them from the Portuguese colonial armies. <clears throat> now, why do I tell you this story? Well, I tell you this story because seldom is the storyline of any novel or movie the big story that the history books tell about. In fact, <clears throat> at the time of the story in 18th century South America, the big story that was going on, excuse me, <clears throat> the big story that was going on had to do with Spain and Portugal and colonial forces like this who were having turf wars in South America and using native peoples as pawns in a giant game of chess. And so what happens, though, in movies and in stories is that the actual, the actual storyline eclipses the incredibly big things that are going on that the history books write about. One day... There will be a movie or there will be a story about COVID-19. And yet, it, it won't be talking about COVID-19 as much as it'll be talking about a family that overcame against all odds and survived COVID-19. <clears throat> and so, similarly, in the case of the mission, the author is intent on following a storyline of redemption of a one-time slave trader turned freedom fighter from hatred to, toward love for the very people that he once persecuted. Now I share that because when we open up the scriptures, when we open up the Bible, the same dynamic is taking place. The storyline of the Bible is not always telling us about the big grand scheme of things that are going on in the history books of the day. In fact, the Bible talks about redemptive history. It is a history book, but it is redemptive history. And in the scriptures we read about, in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, the big story is about a judgment of God upon two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. But that story is only the backdrop. It's only the backdrop of the real storyline, the redemptive history, which has to do with a man called Abraham and his nephew Lot. 
And the redemptive history is what God really wants to convey. And so, similarly, we see that there is an eclipsing of the big story with the real story that God wants to communicate. And when we look at that, we see that the story is not so much about the judgment of God on a wicked city as much as it is about the mercy of God to save those in that city who are righteous. So the story begins in chapter 18 and verse 1. In chapter 18, verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. But immediately in verse 2, we read, And he lifted up his eyes, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, what are we to understand of this? The Lord appears to Abraham, three men are standing in front of him. I believe that what we're seeing here is that, that God had to show himself in the presence of three men. Because no man can see God and live, and so we know from Scripture that any manifestation, epiphany of God, is a mediated manifestation. And so whether God comes in a pillar of fire or in a burning bush or a vision in the night or a dream, or whether he shows up by showing three men, that's up to God. And we see from the pronouns of the scripture that that's exactly what's going on here, is that the presence of God is with these three men. Because Abraham himself, it says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent, and then he said to them, O Lord, from the, the plural to the singular. In verse 9, it says, they said to Abraham, where is Sarah? He responds and says, in, his, in the tent. And then the Lord said... This time next year, she's going to be with child. It goes back and forth between these three men speaking and the Lord speaking, or Abraham speaking to these three men, and then right away speaking to the Lord. Back and forth. And then in verse 20 of the scripture, we read this. The Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And then it says in verse 22, so the men turned from there and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, now the men are gone and Abraham is still standing, it says, right in front of the Lord, before the Lord. And then all the way through that intercession that we just read about, where Abraham intercedes for Sodom, and it ends this way. Verse 33, <clears throat> And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So how are we to understand this? Well, I believe that God showed up at Abraham and Sarah's home. He showed up in the form of these three men, and we believe that the third man was none other than Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God. And the reason I say that is because we read in the Scriptures that the, that the men went down to Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. And how does chapter 19, verse 1 begin? It begins by saying, and the two angels, not three now, but the two angels, they came to Sodom in the evening. 
And so now we have this picture that is developed as the author has presented the stage. Abraham is up on the mountain standing before the Lord and he is interceding on behalf of his, his nephew and the city of Sodom. And two angels now have gone down into Sodom. That is where we pick up this story. What's interesting about this scripture is that when we see Abraham have these, this visitation from God, he recognizes immediately that this is the Lord. But in the case of Sodom, when these two angels, men, in the form of men, come into Sodom, he gives them hospitality, but he does not recognize this as a visitation from God. It begs the question, are you and I mature enough in our relationship with God to know when he visits us? Are you and I mature enough in our walk with God, God conscious enough to know when and how God speaks to us? If God sends somebody your way and they are speaking something that you need to hear, do you recognize the voice of God? If someone comes to you or, or a, a verse comes to you or you read something or a circumstance happens, do you see how God is at work in all of these ways? The most influential people on this earth that are instant in prayer are those who know how to identify the voice of God and respond with intercession. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice. They recognize God's ways. So let's talk then this morning, using Abraham as an example, let's talk about what intercessory prayer is all about. And let's begin by saying that intercession is prayer that responds to the mercy of God. Where does this come from? Well, you'll notice in chapter 18, verse 20, there is an outcry that goes up to God. There's an outcry that goes up to the Lord, and, and, and God says, shall we tell Abraham about this outcry? And he decides at the end of chapter 18 to do so. And the outcry that's going up to God causes the Lord to want to wanna go and check this place out. So the two messengers are sent into Sodom. I wonder what the outcry was that came up from God's, to God's ears from Sodom. Was it, was it children that were crying out to God because their parents had abandoned them in that wicked city? Was it single moms with no means of income because their fathers of their children were caught up in a life of debauchery and lust? Was it the poor in that city crying out because they were being robbed by the powerful and enslaved and no, had no means of living? Was it the righteous that lived in the, that city who were crying out to God for protection against the evil that they lived in and was surrounding them? We don't know exactly, but an outcry went up to God, and God hears the outcry that comes up from earth. The outcry that came up to these, to the Lord's ears from a city whose name became synonymous with all sin and evil. God sends messengers. You know, we see a similar situation happen just several years later in Exodus chapter 3 when Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for many years and it says in Exodus chapter 3 that God hears the cry of Israel and he knows their sufferings and he comes down 
to deliver them. And you know the story of Moses. So going back to Genesis 18 and verse 21, it says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And what does the very next verse say in 23? It says, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? We see intercession begin right there. Abraham steps into his intercessory prayer closet and he begins to cry out to the living God as he looks down toward the valley where Sodom is. And God Abraham says to God, suppose there are 50, 50 righteous. Would you sweep away the whole city for the sake of that? And the righteous with the wicked and so on. He goes through. He ends by saying, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just and right? You know, friends, this is hardcore intercession. This is hardcore intercession. And why do I say that? Because it's responding to the cries of mercy that God has heard, and prayer always acts in alignment with God's hearing. It, it acts in alignment with the cries of mercy that God is listening to. He wants us to be on task with that kind of prayer. And so you and I have the opportunity, friends, in these days of COVID-19, you and I have the opportunity to hear the cries that are going up to God every day, Every day all around this globe, cries are going up to God. God is listening. And you and I have the opportunity to listen in to the cries that are going up to God. Do you know what? You and I have the opportunity to pick up the phone today, this week, and make several phone calls of people that you'd not normally call. And you could just simply ask them on the phone, how are you doing really? And how can I pray for you? I want to intercede for you. How can I pray for you? Why don't we do that this week? Why don't we hear the cries that God's hearing? Just pick up the phone and phone someone that you'd normally not talk to maybe, but that God puts on your heart and mind. We can respond by interceding. Verse 23, the prayer of Abraham. What an incredible prayer. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And that's where it stops. Because God knew that there were not 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom. I like what John Davis writes in a book he wrote called Paradise to Prison. He says, the nature of Abraham's intercessory prayer is eminently instructive for us believers today. Far too often, we pray as if we must overcome God's reluctance rather than seize upon his willingness. Isn't that good? So often we pray as though we need to overcome God's reluctance instead of recognizing that he is ready to give. He's, he's willing to answer, but he wants to involve us in the whole solution. He responds to the outcries. We must remember, friends, when we pray, that we have a God who's already been on that situation before we arrived. He's an all-loving God. He's a merciful God. His arm is not too short to save. We do not need to bend his arm or his ear for him to be merciful. He longs to be merciful. But we know from the scriptures 
that his mercy is tempered by his justice. And that leads us to the next part of intercession. You see, intercession, intercessory prayer does not just respond to the mercy of God, which is responding to the cries of the suffering on earth. Intercessory prayer also takes a stand for the justice of God. Verse 25 is a rhetorical question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Absolutely he will. Yes, resounding yes. God is able only to do what is just and right, for he is justice and fairness. He will not allow the wicked to go unpunished is the answer. And prayer is not just a response to his mercy, it's also a taking a stand for his justice. What kind of God do you think God would be if instead of judging those who robbed and killed and violated others in Sodom, if he just said, well, you know, I'm a merciful God, I will forgive them, I think most of us would probably say that he's not fair to do so. We would bring into question God's justice if he just did that. And I would say you and I would also bring into question his mercifulness as well to just let the innocent suffer and the guilty go unpunished. No, you see God's mercy and God's justice are, are held together in perfect balance in a holy God. He does always what is merciful in response to the outcry from earth, but he also does what is just. His ways are always just. And so, where we see life, where we see life from our perspective, we, we could often say it seems like a lot of wicked people are, are getting away with a lot of evil on earth. But you see, the Bible tells us quickly that that vengeance is his, that these people are only storing up wrath for the day to come when God will indeed bring about his justice. There's no better picture of mercy and justice meeting up than in the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the very focal point of what we are gonna be celebrating this coming Friday. I hope you can join us on this same live stream, Facebook Live. Mercy and justice meet up on the cross of Jesus Christ because it was mercy, sheer mercy alone that would open up a way for us as sinners to be forgiven when we justly re receive or should justly receive condemnation and wrath from God. And it was justice for God to extract from Jesus Christ the very punishment that I deserved and you deserved. So God meted out and was able to be both merciful on the cross and just and fair on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ. What an incredible message of the gospel that we have. What an incredible God we have who can be both merciful and just for all who will humble themselves and come to him and say, Jesus, you alone are the one that can forgive sins. You alone can be my savior. If I were to die in this COVID-19 time, you alone are the one who is the just judge, the fair judge, and the merciful judge who could receive me even now as I confess my sin and as I call upon your name and as I wait upon your mercy to come to my house, to my heart. That's God's mercy. 
What a merciful God he is. Intercession then responds to the mercy of God tugging on what God's heart is, is affected with, tugs on our hearts. But he also knows, we also know that the mercy of God is not only the basis of our intercession, but the justice of God. The justice of God. Intercession, thirdly, is also that which aligns with the purposes of God. What are the purposes of God on earth? Well, it takes us back to where we began. Yes, the Bible is a book of history, but it's a book of redemptive history. The purposes of God are mostly seen in God's people. God, the people that God is forming, the people that God is taking out of the world. The church are called out ones, those who respond to his mercy and do not come under his justice of judgment. And so the redemptive line here are the purposes of God in Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 19, verse 12, the messengers that arrive in Sodom ask Lot to gather his family Gather his family. And remember, this, this is, this is a, a desperate time. This is an urgent time. And they asked Lot to gather his family because the Lord is going to destroy the city in judgment. Lot speaks with his sons-in-law. His two daughters are engaged. And according to verse 14, they respond to him and think he's joking. They don't take him seriously these two young men that are engaged to his two daughters. In verse 16, as the morning is dawning, a whole night has gone on in revelry and debauchery. The, the angels have saved Lot and dragged him into his house when the men of that city had come to the door of Lot seeking to have sex with the men who are inside the house. Wicked things are going on all night long, and in the morning, God's judgment is just looming in the clouds above the cities. And it says in Scripture that Lot hesitated. He hesitates. He's not, he's not sure yet. He's still very much a part of that city. It says that the angels grab him, his wife, and their two daughters, and they whisk them out of the city. A severe mercy. The purposes of God that day are not primarily seen in the judgment upon the wicked, but in the saving of this one righteous man and his family. Unfortunately, even in that rescue, we see the true faith of each family member. The young men that were engaged to his daughter, daughters had grown up in Sodom. They evidenced no faith in the living God, and they are left behind. Even Lot's wife, likely a native of Sodom where he found his wife, after being warned not to look back, she actually did look back. The scripture says in chapter 19, verse 26, that she turned into a pillar of salt. In fact, the word, the verb used there could mean more than just she looked back. It could mean that she turned back. And we get indication of that from Jesus himself in Luke chapter 17. Jesus is warning about the end days, the last days. Jesus is warning. And he says in Luke 17, 31, the words of Jesus, he says, on that day, when the Son of Man is returning for the second time, on that day, he says, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down 
to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And then what does he say? Remember Lot's wife? She turned back. And she was judged. The sin of Lot's wife was loving the things that she was leaving behind more than the things that God had called her toward. She had no love of God and his mercy. But God in his mercy spared Lot and his two daughters. But friends, that's not really the storyline. Meanwhile, where does the author of Genesis take us? Chapter 19, verse 27, takes us to look from Sodom in the valley up onto the mountain where we see the silhouette of a man who's lifting up prayerful hands. What is that man? His man's name is Abraham. And on the very morning when this judgment is falling in the valley, hands are being lifted up on the mountain. Chapter 19, verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up and the smoke of the furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham, it says. What an incredible three words. God remembered Abraham. When I picture this scene in my mind, I picture another passage of Scripture. You know it. It's in Exodus chapter 17 when Joshua is fighting the Amalekites down in the valley, and up on the mountain is Moses. And Moses, it says in the Bible that when Moses' hands are lifted up, the Israelites are winning the battle down in the valley, but when his hands get tired and he drags them down because of weariness, the Amalekites start winning. And so two of his friends, Aaron and Hur, stand beside him and they lift up his hands and they hold them up in prayer and Joshua down in the valley wins the victory over the Amalekites. And at the end of it all, God says to Moses, make sure that you write down a memorial about this day that hands were lifted up and God gave the victory to Israel. The real rescue we see in Genesis 19, folks, is not down in the valley where two angels are taking a young righteous family out of a wicked place. The real rescue mission was up on the mountain where Abraham was interceding. I must confess that I don't know that I have that much belief and faith in the power of intercessory prayer. And I believe that as a church family, as fellow believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to bolster one another's faith, to encourage one another in intercessory prayer so that we can see God's victories one by one. The final thing I want to say about intercessory prayer this morning is that prayer leaves a legacy in the will of God. Now this is a rather indirect way of coming to this point, this fourth point in the message. But I want you to see in chapter 
chapter 19 in verses 30 to 38, that in this scripture, we see what happens to Lot and his two daughters after they are rescued. It says that they asked to go to a small city in verse 20 and 22, a city called Zoar, and they settled there, but then they realized that it's not safe there. We're not sure why. It says that Lot was afraid to live in the valley, probably because they were marked people now, and they had enemies around them, and so instead it says they live in the hill country. Now, this is the dilemma that we see in this chapter. We see that Lot's two daughters, whose fiancés have died in Sodom, now are being whisked away by their father to live absolutely independent of all community, far from God's people and far from the people they once lived among in Sodom. And they live in the hill country in absolute isolation. Where are they going to get husbands from? How will they carry on Lot's family name? Well, in their unbelief and in their practices that they had developed in Sodom and seen in Sodom, and in their shamelessness, they scheme a plan. And you can read about it in chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. They scheme a plan that they will get their father drunk and sleep with him, and they will conceive children through their father, Lot. So probably something that was not uncommon in Sodom, but they knew this was not God's plan for purity in sexual relationship. The Bible is clear that in terms of sexual relationship, that the blessing of God falls upon holy sexuality, not just any sexuality. And holy sexuality is really, I love the way an author I've just been reading recently defines it in a book called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, a man by the name of Christopher Yuan. He says holy sexuality consists of just two paths. It's either chastity in singleness or it's faithfulness in marriage. And there are no other options. And when he defines marriage, he explains it's a man and a woman as God designed it from the very beginning. And so we know that the blessing of God will not rest upon any people that, that choose alternative ways of expressing their sexuality. And so we know that premarital sexual relationship and, and extramarital affairs and adultery and homosexuality, and in this case, in the case of Lot, an incestuous relationship, this is not going to bring the blessing of God upon them. And so what we see is that the chapter ends. The chapter ends by telling us about the legacy of Lot because the two young daughters of Lot conceive from their father and the two children are, are, grow up to become nations. One is Moab, Moabites, and the other is Ammon, the Ammonites. And these are peoples that live to the east of, of, um, of Jerusalem and of Israel throughout their days in the kingdom. In fact, all the way up until the time of David, years later, Israel is still fighting against the Ammonites and the Moabites. They are a thorn in their side. It did not go well. The legacy of Lot is not a nice story. And it is such a contrast with the legacy of Abraham. And so that's why I share it. It's because if we do a comparative study 
uh, of Abraham and Lot, two men who began at the same place at one point from the same family roots and end up in two very different places. Uh, if you're interested in, in, in seeing a copy of that comparative study, let me know. I'd be glad to send it to you. There's a woman who wrote a book, Jane Hamilton, many years ago called A Map of the World. And in that book, she says, I used to think that if you fell from grace, it was more likely than not the result of one stupendous error or else an unfortunate accident. I hadn't learned that it can happen so gradually you don't lose your stomach or hurt yourself in the landing. You don't necessarily sense the motion. I found it takes at least two and generally three things to alter the course of a life. You slip around the truth once and then again and once more, and there you are, feeling for a moment that it was sudden, your arrival at the bottom of the heap. You see, Lot had made his decisions and had made so many decisions in a row that finally he had developed a destiny, and only by the sheer mercy of God was saved from that Sodom judgment. Proverbs 6, 27, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? No. Lot played with fire and he got burned. I think Lot was one of the most miserable men that's found in the Bible. The reason I say that is because he is called a righteous man. If you were to look at 2 Peter chapter 2, You'll read in verses 7 and 8 that Lot was distressed from the wickedness that he saw around him in Sodom, that, that he was tormented every day with seeing the wickedness that was around him in Sodom. Yet he still chose to live in Sodom. And I think that one of the most miserable people on the face of this earth is the believer in Jesus Christ who is trying to live in two worlds, who is opening their lives up constantly to the influences of the evil one of worldliness, and yet is trying to at the same time keep walking with God. What a miserable existence. God does not call us to that. God calls us to a life of holiness and purity. And so, friends, as we be conclude the, the message today, I want, to, I want to call you to intercessory prayer, prayer that responds to the cries that are going up to God right now, prayer that also sees the justice of God and, and respects that God acts at moments in history to accomplish his purposes. Prayer that keeps in focus those who are called by God, the redemptive purposes of God. And prayer also that leaves behind us a legacy. Oh, folks, your children, your relatives, the, the legacy of prayer that you could leave behind because you're lifting them up to God's throne. I want to encourage you, as we think about how to reflect on this, I don't think we could study this passage and think about this theme without calling us at this time as a church to prayer and fasting. And so the leadership of our church is asking you to join us on Wednesday, this Wednesday, April the 8th, and join us in a day of prayer and fasting. However you choose to observe it in your home, you, you, you do that. If uh, you want to miss one meal, that's fine. If you want to miss the whole day of eating, that's fine. If you don't want to miss any meals, that's fine too. Sometimes you can't. 
for medical reasons, that's, that's fine, but join us in prayer that day. And uh, we will send you something this Tuesday so that you will have some, a guide, some information to follow us that day in prayer. And if you're able to, join us at 11 o'clock that morning as we join together on Zoom to, uh, to the Come to the Quiet prayer time that Erica Cooper is going to lead. There's one passage that I want to conclude with. It's a very heavy and severe passage as well. It's found in chapter 16 of Numbers, but it's such a picture of intercessory prayer, and I read it this morning in my quiet time. And it's a terrible time in Israel's history in Numbers 16 when a a wicked people had rebelled against Moses and Aaron and their leadership. And in response, God is, is, is angry with his people. But what happens is that Moses tells Aaron to run into the crowd because a plague had broken out and people were dying. And it says that he ran into the crowd with his censer, which was a picture of prayer, of intercession. That's what censer looks like as we look at the New Testament understanding of that. And as Aaron intercedes for the people, the plague stops and lives were spared. And here's what it says in the scripture. In Numbers chapter 16 and verse 48, 47 and 48. So Aaron took it as Moses and Moses and ran into the midst of the assembly and behold the plague had already begun among the people and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. Verse 48, and he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. He stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Friends, God is calling his church to intercessory prayer. God is calling us to stand between the dead and the living and oh that God might in his mercy stop the plague, send his mercy, bring the healing, resolve the problem. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, in your mercy, would you come and help us, oh Lord? Here on this earth, you know that we are crying out to you. As so many lives are being affected by the COVID-19, Father, would you hear our prayer? Lord, we, we stand with those who are suffering. We stand with those who are far from our community but are are suffering on this earth. They've lost loved ones or they are not certain of their own health. Oh God, have mercy. And would you stir our hearts from the coldness, the complacency, so that we might intercede, oh Lord, as we're called to, to stand between the living and the dead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh Lord, what an amazing thing that we can have a king who is our king in every deep sense and at the same time know that our king, when we talk to you, you are not ambivalent, you are not unwilling to hear us, we do not have to convince you to care. But you are right there willing to do your will in answer to our prayers. And so I pray that you would help us as your church when we pray to you. Give us a sense of your purpose. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would give us a sense of your purpose as we pray.
I thank you, Lord, that you hear us. Please bless each one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day, everyone.